but I want to begin by reading the uh, epistle lesson from Colossians. So listen for the word of the Lord. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from this glorious power so that you may have all endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transformed us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He Himself is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him God was pleased to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace. By making peace through the blood of His cross. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today we are celebrating Christ the King Sunday. It's basically uh, a hinge on a gate from all of these Sundays after Pentecost, and now we're swinging our attention into Advent 1. This is the final Sunday of the Christian calendar. Christ the King Sunday is a punctuation mark. Next week, we begin a brand new liturgical year with Advent and with hanging of the greens. But Christ the King Sunday, um, whereas Advent and Epiphany and Eastertide Lent are ancient uh, liturgical seasons. Christ the King Sunday is not that old. It's less than 100 years old. But its, its story, its history is quite telling. Because in 1925, between two great world wars, after the war, First World War in 1918, the war to end all, all wars, the world wasn't exactly peaceful. The world was in tumult, chaos, you started to see rise the rise of evil. Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini. You started to see poverty. You started to see hunger spread throughout the world. Secularism, as some scholars say, was increasing daily. So into this political climate in the 1920s, Pope Pius XI said, we need a liturgical feast day to resist tyranny. All of these so-called czars and kaisers and lords, they're no kings at all. Christ, Christ alone is king. Christ alone is worthy of our praise. And so here we are. Nearly a hundred years later, tyranny continues, chaos continues, uncertainty continues, fear pervades, there's still hunger, there's still famine, there's still disease, there's still plagues, and we could get so bogged down in that, except we're the church. It's our role to proclaim that Christ is King. My question over the next few brief minutes is twofold. What kind of King is Jesus? Does all this regal language, does it bother us? Do we understand it? I mean, we sort of were formed as a resistance movement to a monarchy. 
What kind of king is Jesus? What does it mean to make Jesus king of our lives? And so Paul gives us, the early Christian church, this high and and lofty image that Christ is firstborn of of all things. He's before everything. He is uh, both visible and invisible. He is high and mighty and transcendent and cosmic. And so Paul makes us look upwardly because the image that we're likely to have of Jesus Christ is too small. So Paul says, look up. And see that this story of which you are a part is much bigger than any one of us. The gospel with which this epistle is is paired is a familiar one. I didn't read it for that reason, but it's the crucifixion of Jesus. So it's a strange one too on the last Sunday of the year. There hangs Jesus in Luke's gospel between two criminals. One who represents the past. You know, he's done all these things. He saved all these people, so he says. He has that sign, King of the Jews, let him save himself and save us. And then on the other side is is the one looking at the future saying, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So somewhere between the past and somewhere between the future, somewhere between being mocked and somewhere between being heralded and recognized and praised, there stands Jesus. Isn't that our story? That Jesus stands right in the middle of, of the good moments and the bad moments, the highs and the lows just kind of plants his feet. In this case, he has holes in his feet and in his hands. And so what we're reading about and thinking about on Christ the King is this this king who would leave his throne and and come to earth for a very unusual kind of of coronation, one that did not include a crown of jewels, but a crown of thorns. One that did not include a, a throne at all, but two pieces of wood nailed together and He was hoisted for the world to see. We have this exalted Christ and this humiliated Christ. Who is this King Jesus? And who is King Jesus for you? What does it mean to proclaim with our lives that Christ is King? And maybe even more specific, that to confess Christ with our King is King with our lips is only one part. To confess that Christ is king of our whole lives is is to take that which is inward and to make it outward as a visible sign so the world will know through our time and our talents, our our treasures, our relationships, our, our words, by our showing up, that Christ is king of our lives and there is no king but Jesus. To say that Christ is king professes that other kings are not in fact Kings, although we know so clearly that the world's kings beg us to worship them. There's king spending, and king idleness, and king materialism, and king addiction, and king ego, and and king money-making, and king anger, and king shame, and king apathy, and king guilt, and king indifference and king pride, and king control, and they're all asking us to bend a knee of loyalty to them, to give them our time and our our, our mental capacity and our emotions and and everything that, that makes us tick. What kings do you have in your life that are preventing you from seeing that Christ is the only king? We pray every week, your kingdom come, 
What do we mean by that? How do we know it when we see it? Well, our king, what our king requires is different. Our king requires us to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Our king requires faith over fear and hope over hate and joy over jealousy and love over loathing. Our king's kingdom is seen when people serve. When they say, my king came to be to serve, not to be served. So our king is found in different places, on the streets with the hungry and impoverished people and dining rooms and homes of, of sinners. We see and read about him taking up time with prostitutes and forgiving embezzlers and adulterers and weeping over his zip code and caring for people who have a lack of hope and a lack of food and a lack of clothing and a lack of freedom. And if we look there, that's where we will find Jesus Christ the King. Christ chooses to reign in, in those places and then he just waits for the church to show up. He waits for us to find the places in our own souls where we are hungered, we are starving, we are impoverished for meaning and for, and for answers and all it is because we have way too many priorities in our lives. We just need that one thing, to profess Christ as King. Conveniently, today is also Commitment Sunday. Maybe providentially, of all years, Christ the King Sunday is Commitment Sunday. What we're going to do in just a few moments is, is make an outward statement that Christ is King in our lives. We don't have all the answers. There's certainly more fear and chaos than we, we care, and I certainly know there's, there's fear among the flock right now, but that's precisely who the cosmic Christ broke into this world to save and to rescue and to redeem and continues to do so again and again and again. So how is Christ the King in, in our lives will be determined by the signs we commit to God and, and to one another, the pledges we make to pray for our church and to be present as often as possible, to give our tithes and offerings and entrust those to the church to multiply, to feed thousands more than we can on our own, to serve the needy and, and to witness, to witness to our faith by sharing our story. And let me just say, the church needs you now more than ever, and you need the church now more than ever. Today is about family and the future and a faith declaration and forging ahead without fear. Can I get a witness to that? Because there's a different way to which we as God's people are called. It's the way of Jesus, who though in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We sacrifice a little bit of ourselves for the sake of God's kingdom. Our series entitled, Can I Get a Witness? It concludes today. 
And the punctuation mark for that series is one of the most inspirational people I know in my entire life. My friend, Philip Bryan, comes now to testify to Christ being king in his life. Philip, thank you for coming to share. Thank you, Jay. And thank you, Lucas, for <clears throat> giving my kid 11 M&Ms. <laughs> Had to be him. He's the smarter of the two. If he says you gave him 11, you gave him 11. <clears throat> and thank you, uh, Jay, for this opportunity. And, uh, you know, growing up as an only child preacher's kid, I did not go into the family business for a reason. Um, but knowing that I would be here today, my father has been uh, extremely jealous all week that, that I'm the one that gets to be here today and, and he doesn't. But when Jay asked me to, uh, to come to his office a couple weeks ago, uh, I knew what he wanted. You see, it's an old uh, story about preachers. When they ask you to come to their office, it, it's going to be really important. It's going to probably be asking you to do something. So you better buckle up. He wanted me to speak today, and I knew it. And I knew what I'd say. I'd say no. But from the time I walked out of his office, and over the next couple of days, I had a really tough time with that answer. So my wife, Brittany, and I talked about it, prayed about it, and pushed it to, to the side for a little while, and needed more time. Because you see, I had a story. And I knew I had a story. But in the course of my life, I've had plenty of stories, none probably uh, good to be shared here at this podium, many of them. But as I tossed and turned each night, I realized that I needed to be a witness and to tell my story. To Jay's credit, he only asked once. He let God do the rest. It worked, and I'm here. In January, my story began with a sore throat. Nothing out of the ordinary, but it lingered. And it was only on one side. I had a routine physical planned, so I asked my doctor out of curiosity if he could check out my tonsil. He did and had concern enough to order scans done. And later that evening came the call and the results, I had cancer. To say the least, it was a shock, something that many of you have faced in your own lives and in the lives of those that are close to you. But for us, it was a devastating realization that our lives, our comfortable lives, were about to change. It was about to become a lot more uncomfortable, with the big unknown being life or death. Brittany and I had just been discussing at Christmas how blessed we were. We had two children, then four and two, who were happy and healthy and brought us so much joy. Business was good and we had life by the tail until we didn't. The night I received the call to confirm the scans revealed I had cancer, <clears throat> Brittany was in Birmingham with our son, John Phillip. He was going to have eye surgery the next day. She had so much on her plate with the anxiety of surgery uh, and although fairly routine, I knew that I couldn't add any more to her plate that night. I was alone and scared and couldn't tell anyone until Brittany had time to come home and I could 
give her the message of where we were and my issues. But I needed answers and I needed, needed some solutions too, hopefully. So I reached out to Dr. Steve Davidson in our church. He was a great confidant and friend. And I knew that he wasn't going to tell anybody. He had an oath to follow. He called me back that night uh, and operating as part doctor and part therapist. He helped me navigate my fears with a quiet calm that it's going to be all right. I would later tell him that I'm so great, thankful for God and Steve Davidson for helping me on this journey. And his response was simple and in that order. There are times in your life you remember vividly. I'm sure you all can relate. A time of joy, a time of pain, the moment you got down on one knee or received the call that someone had died. Well, I'll never forget the sounds on the other end of the phone when I finally was able to tell Brittany that we had a problem. But quickly we collected ourselves. We committed to fight, fight harder than we've ever fought before. And 10 days later, I would start chemo and radiation. As the weeks progressed and after treatment began, Brittany and I discussed and decided that we needed to start telling people because many changes began occurring in our lives. But we made the decision not to make, out a, to make a mass announcement or put out a social media post because you all have plenty on your plates and didn't need to burden you with my issues too. I figured, but thankfully, the word got out to most of you. As the weeks progressed, radiation treatments began to take their toll on my body. Eating was getting harder and more painful. Fatigue set in, and as week four of seven hit, I developed pneumonia by eating and aspirating food into my, into my lungs because my throat was hurting too bad. Pneumonia sent me to the hospital and later had surgery for a feeding tube not long thereafter. My oxygen levels and heart levels dropped dangerously and coupled with pneumonia and surgery, it felt like my body was shutting down. My weight began to drop. I lost almost 50 pounds and we hit rock bottom. I was sick and I was mad. I was mad at the world. I was mad at God. It felt helpless and hopeless. I couldn't imagine having to go back into radiation one more time. I wanted to quit. And if it hadn't worked by now, then fine. It wasn't going to work. Being dead might be better. Weeks later, I asked Brittany how she spent her time in the hospital because I didn't really remember. She said, well, I was shopping for black dresses. Thankfully, God had a better plan. During this time in the hospital, God began to work, and the words I kept hearing over and over were, what matters now? I started to think about those words and to think about and to take an inventory of my life before cancer. It was a painful realization that there's so much that surrounds our daily lives that doesn't really matter when faced with issues of this magnitude as if I needed to feel any worse. God helped open my eyes through this experience in ways I could not have imagined. How kind am I to others, not knowing what they are dealing with in their daily lives? Can I disagree without being disagreeable? Does it really matter who won or lost? I realized that none of the issues I've been worried about or focused on really mattered anymore. Not politics, social status, marital material possessions, my clothes, I certainly didn't have any that fit anymore. Petty disputes with friends or colleagues, gas prices, or even who won the game. 
What mattered to me was simple. My faith and my family. Sitting in the car at your son's first t-ball game, longing to be able to walk to the field, but not having the energy. Seeing your family head to church on Easter, wishing you could be with them, but not being able to get out of bed. Small life occurrences that I'd taken for granted mattered now more than ever. The days ahead were difficult and painful, but looking back, I know that our faith gave us strength to press on and trust in his plan. God also continued to work through all of you as word spread that I wasn't doing so well, and my story became our story. Without a public call to action, y'all, our church family, acted and stepped in. Whether it was prayer requests or food, activities, or toys for the kids, all of these gave our family strength and gave me peace of mind that Brittany didn't have to worry about meals, preparing, ordering. They just kept showing up. Once the refrigerator and freezer were full, Brittany began replying that we didn't need anything more, just your prayers. But you continued to act and show up and take care of the needs we didn't even know we had. Especially our former Sunday school class members who found creative ways to continue supporting us. Brittany's small group of 17 and 18 year old girls wrote her letters of support that she read nightly. They helped more than you will ever know. From the smallest and the youngest to the oldest, our church family cared. The power of prayer was also so awesome. We were covered up daily and are so appreciative. Seeing the power of prayer firsthand was an amazing experience because there's no other way that we would have kept it together. There was a quiet peace that blanketed our family when times were tough. As hard as it was to care for me at times, no one cracked. God gave them the strength. That's the only way I can explain how a wife can balance the lives of two children in a household while having to learn the ins and outs of, learn, of teaching her husband how to use, use a feeding tube and never once breaking down at how tough her life had become or a father having to drive his son in oxygen tank to cancer treatments without shedding tears when I know it was gut-wrenching to watch. The strength to get through these times was a blessing from God and an answer to your prayers and ours. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen. I'm very thankful for the investment our church has made in technology and broadcasting services, the services as I was a mattress Methodist for weeks. Being able to watch the kids at children's time was particularly joyful for me since I couldn't be there. Once I was able to return to church, I also appreciate all of you breaking the ninth commandment and telling me how good I looked. I didn't, and I knew it, but it made me feel good. We're thankful to our church family for being there. And as I stand here today cancer-free, I know that I can be a witness for the grace of God, the power of prayer, and the value of our church family. We talk a lot about scars in our house, and two curious children constantly ask me about mine. The newest ones have drawn particular interest, splitting my stomach. It looks part, half ni part knife fight, part bullet hole. One day, Cece asked, Daddy, will your scars go away? And I said, no, baby girl, they'll be there forever. But that's okay. Because scars are reminders. You all have them, internal, external. They're reminders of the grace and healing power of God. 
And as we, break, as we prepare to bring pledges in honor of the Lord, the fruits of our labor, I challenge you to put yourselves in that hospital bed. So look at your own scars and ask yourself what matters now. What truly matters now. What matters in life is what our church focuses on daily. Providing outreach to the forgotten, hope to the hopeless, and working to be the hands and feet of Christ that we are all called to be. I can think of no better way to invest my resources, our resources. I want to acknowledge everyone who has battled cancer, those who beat it, those who are struggling with it today, and those who lost their battle, and to their doctors, and nurses, and caregivers. God bless you and your families. You are so strong. Finally, from my family to yours, thank you for supporting us. We are forever grateful to our church and everyone that prayed for us and each and every one of you. Thanks be to God.